0: Good morning, Four Corners. It is, it is always a blessing to stand up and look up and see all of your faces. You know, I hope that our time uh, in Romans 12 and 13 so far has increased your affections for God's people. You know, that is one of the very practical effects of the last several passages that we've looked at is it raises our affection for God's people that we... We exist in a family, and this is a local body of believers, a local family, a local expression of that larger family across space and time that is Christ's church. So I pray that your love for your brothers and sisters, even those maybe that you had some grievances against in the past, or maybe that frustrate you in this or that way, or maybe just folks that you haven't gotten to know yet, uh, that our time The last few sermons in particular has done that in your heart. If you would, go and go with me to Romans 13, verses 11 to 14. Today we come to the end of this chapter. And our passage for today is somewhat well known because of its connection to the church father, Augustine, or Augustine, or St. Augustine, Augustine, as you might know him. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, Uh, he was one of the most well-known church fathers. He's been considered probably the most significant theologian in the history of the Christian church after the apostles. And this passage that we're going to look at today, Romans 13, 11 to 14, played a particularly special role in his life. And, uh, you know, we've seen that in our own lives the way that God uses a text or a set of texts to minister to us, maybe in life in general or at the point of our conversion or just in different seasons of life, we see how God will take his word and he will use it for us in very specific ways. Well, that happened uh, one day with Augustine. He had been His mother was a faithful Christian, Monica, and she had been praying for him for a long time. His life would be characterized by sort of intellectual vanity. Uh, He was pursuing all the philosophies of the day. He was quite a a rhetorician. He was very intelligent and successful in a lot of ways. He was also uh, highly engaged in sexual immorality. He was just pursuing the city life as a young man. And his mother, a Christian, had been praying for him for some time, and God was continually working on him. But one day, all of that came to a crisis point for him. And he's in a garden, under a tree, he falls down weeping, and he just feels enslaved to his uncleanness, to his sexual sin. And he's just crying out to God, crying out to God for a change of heart, crying out to God for a turning point in his life fascinating story. Uh, Next door to that garden, there are some kids playing a game. And they're just running around playing, you know, like our kids do. And they were saying, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And he recalls how he wondered, he was thinking about what what kind of game is that? I haven't heard that game before. But regardless, he took it as something that he needed to pay attention to. And he had a copy of the scriptures sitting nearby. And he uh, determined to just pick it up and look at whatever was in front of him, to take up and read. And as he took up the scriptures and read, his eyes fell on our passage for today. And it was that text that Augustine, as he describes it, it was as though uh, everything was changed. He, he had uh, immediate certainty, he had immediate rest, immediate peace. And that p- passage God used to bring finality to Augustine's conversion. We see a similar thing. With Romans 117 in the life of Martin Luther. And so it's just neat to see how God has used Romans in these two towering figures throughout church history. But this passage for today played an important role in his life. And I pray that today, as we come to it, as Mark prayed at the beginning, God has brought us here sovereignly, providentially. We're here this morning. This is not just another Sunday. This is a providential appointment where God is putting before us this great text and he's calling us to obey it. He's calling us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds as we encounter it. And so I pray that will happen for each of us in our own way as God works this morning. So for the last several weeks since entering Romans chapter 12, we've been looking at practical Christian living. That's been the focus, coming out of the 11 chapters of robust theology. Now we are looking at what it looks like to live the Christian life on the ground. And in chapter 13, so far, we've seen two major themes. So this will be the third sermon and last sermon on chapter 13. And we've seen, prior to today, two other themes. Verses 1 to 7, submitting to the authorities. And then in verses 8 to 10, loving our neighbor. Paul moves from that theme to our passage for today, verses 11 to 14. And in these verses for today, Paul reaches a climax. It is as though he looks back on everything that he has said so far in these last two chapters, and he issues a call for his readers to live in the daylight. That's the big idea for today's passage. He calls his readers to live in the daylight, to live as children of light, or children of the day, as he says in 1 Thessalonians five five. That's why we had, uh, had Mark read that passage. That's a, that really is a parallel passage to what we're looking at today. And there, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul refers to the Christians as children of light, children of the day. So the title for the sermon this morning is Living in the Daylight. You can see that up there on the screen. So if you would go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read all of chapter 13 just so you can get the flow. Uh, but verses 11 to 14 are our focus. And let me just say this. Recently, I've been studying uh, Augustine's sermons or homilies on the Gospel of John. And I came across recently in the introduction to those uh, that the editor was describing how in Augustine's day, the people would come to the church building, the cathedral building, and they would hear Augustine preach, and they stood the entire time that he preached. So, uh, so we're just grateful that we're, we have these seats here uh, in this building. So we're just going to stand for the reading of God's word, not for the entirety of the preaching of God's word, but while recognizing that some in the past have done that. So let's read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. This is God's word. It is perfect and profitable for his people. May it do its work today. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So now, after going through that text, uh, I hope that we'll all be able to worship the Lord deeply. Next March, April time frame, as we're paying our taxes that we're thinking consciously about our duty and the purpose for those taxes that we really are worshiping the Lord. Verse eight, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And then our text for today, verses 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when, than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And how appropriate that was for Augustine at that time in his life. Verse 14: But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You can go ahead and be seated. Praise God that He ministers to us in such intimate ways that the transcendent, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible, unseen God ministers to little old me and you in the intricacies of our daily lives. That is the good God, the powerful God, and yet imminent God that we serve. That's the God whom we have gathered here this morning to worship. And so I pray that our hearts are filled with joy that we are together worshiping him. And this is a time of worship as we come to preaching because it is work to listen to sermons. Uh, it It is work. We have to engage our minds and our hearts. We have to prayerfully do it as we meditate and as we ask the Lord to use his word. So let's worship the Lord now as we come to this time of instruction from his word. Let's pray. Father, help us to worship You, through this time of preaching and listening, Father, we ask that your word would be clearly taught, that it would be understood by the hearer, and Father, that it would be edifying, that it would do its work of reproving and reminding, edifying, Lord, that it would give us a greater understanding of who we are, and that as we understand more or are reminded more of who we are, that our lives would reflect that. That as we behold the Lord, the glory of the Lord, that we would be transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. Father, we deserve nothing from your hand. We are entirely undeserving of any kindness that you would give us. Father, what a blessing that you made us. That we have life. That we have breath. That we can live and move and have our being in your world. Though marred by sin, it is a world made very good in the beginning. A world filled with blessings. With sun and rain and food and family. So many good things and on top of all of that father infusing and reinvigorating all of that and renewing all of that is the the wondrous work of your son in each of our hearts that we have Christ as our king that our hearts have been renewed and our minds renewed and our bodies will one day be made in his likeness father we thank you that you have saved us You've saved us from the wrath to come. You've saved us from the judgment that we deserve. You've saved us from sin and death and hell and the devil. You have saved us from your judgment. We praise you for that, God, and we ask this morning that our hearts would be filled to the brim with rejoicing over these things. God, help none of us to be to be drowsy or numb to these truths, God, but raise us up this day for this time to receive your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul presents it here, there are three aspects of living in the daylight. It really comes at this from three angles, and you'll see those up on the screen. So he talks about our consciousness Our clothing and our conduct, living in the daylight, living as children of light, as children of the day, involves these three things. And of course, they're interrelated, but there are three aspects of this one big idea, which is that we are to be those who live in the daylight. Our consciousness, our clothing, and our conduct. So let's go first to our consciousness. And for that, we're going to look at verse 11 through the first part of verse 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. It is probably better at this point to go with the NASB translation. Some of you NASBers out there can cheer uh, in your heart. Uh, and, and it is funny because the tra- you know there there's value to there are a whole host of translations that I use uh, and benefit from, and the NASB is a good solid translation and uh, it is it very much tries to work word by word just like the ESV. But I think and the NIV is similar to the NASB here in what it translates. But what we have in the NASB for verse 11 is do this knowing. The time. Do this knowing the time. And I think that's a better way to render those first few words. In other words, Paul is looking back over what he's been saying, probably since the beginning of chapter 12, and he's concluding with this message Do all of this knowing where you are situated. So you, I think we have to supply the verb do here. Uh, It makes sense in the context and with the grammar that Paul has at the beginning of verse 11. Do all of this, all that he's been saying, do this knowing where you are situated, knowing the time that you are in. Paul's language has to do with the last days. This is eschatological language. Now I used that word uh, several weeks back and had someone come up afterwards and say, what in the world does that mean? So I, I have to be careful about that. But eschatology is the study of last things. And if you say something is eschatological, it is, that means it's referring to last things. That that's, the, that's the frame of reference there. And so Paul's language here is eschatological. It has to do with the last days. He is reminding his readers where they are situated along the timeline of redemptive history. So it's corporate, it's personal as well, but it's also corporate. We need to understand this as Paul is looking out at redemptive history and he's seeing where his readers, where he himself is positioned along that larger historical timeline. Yes, they live in this time, this hour. We live in this time, in this hour which is called, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, the present evil age. So you want to know what this season of life is called, what this season of history is called? It is called the present evil age. We are living in it. So we ought not to be surprised when we see evil flourishing. This entire age is defined by evil. The God of this world is very much at work. It's one of the reasons I struggle with an amillennial position. Revelation 20, talking about Satan being bound. It's difficult for me to understand Satan being currently bound while we are told that he moves about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And that he is said to be the God of this world. And we are said to be, in Ephesians 2, living according to the course of this world, which is governed by the prince of the power of the air. The current position of this world is very much under the sway of the evil one. He is not bound. He is very much at work. And this world is described under this evil one as the present evil age. This is a time of moral Darkness, characterized as night. Darkness, night. That is the world we live in. That is the world we hear about in the news. That is the world that we see in our own lives and in the lives of those we know and love. That is the world we are situated in. But Christ has come. We're going to talk about that next month explicitly when we talk about Advent, when we celebrate Advent as we move towards Christmas, we recognize that Christ has come and he has brought salvation. As Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So yes, we are situated in this present evil age, and yet we are here post-coming of The Lord Jesus Christ, post his appearing, post the grace of God having appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And that is why Paul says the night is far gone or advanced. The day is at hand. And once again, I have to go here with the NASB which reads, the night is almost gone and the day is near. I think that's a better way to capture this. The night is almost gone and the day is near. The day being Christ's second coming. Believers now, in the present time, face three realities. You could write these down. You probably already have these firmly in place. But as we live today, as we gather this morning, believers live facing three realities. First, we are still living in the present evil age, as I said before. This is a reality. The night, the darkness, that's where we are. Second, we are already partakers of salvation that came when Christ came, the first time. The new age has come. New creation has begun. We are experiencing new life in the Spirit. New age, new creation, new life. All of these things are already here. These are present realities. So that's the second thing we face. The third thing we face, or reality we face, is that this new age that has already begun is to be consummated. So it hasn't yet been completed There is a sense in which we are saved, and there is a sense in which we are being saved, and there is a sense in which we are not yet saved. When we think about justification, we are saved. When we think about sanctification, we are being saved. And when we think about our future glorification, we are yet to be saved. We are waiting for that salvation. It hasn't come yet. It is to be consummated. It is is to be brought to completion at the coming of Christ. The day of light. The day of the Lord. The end of darkness. So these are three realities we face. So what does this threefold situation mean for us today? What does it mean for us right now? Well, Paul tells us here, and the answer is simple. We need to wake up. That's the response of someone who hears these words and recognizes that this is where we are positioned, that this is the time in which we find ourselves. The response, the call to us is wake up. Wake up. For Christians, this is a time of wakefulness, a time to move from sleep to consciousness, a time to move out of drowsiness to being awake. This is a time to understand that we are part of a new creation, a new age, and we have been given this new life in the Spirit. We have this now, and it will be fully realized when Christ comes back. And this is why Paul says in verse 11, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first came believe. The return of Christ is imminent. Is Christ coming soon? Yeah. If you were to ask Paul, is Christ coming soon? Yeah. For all of us, yes, Christ is coming. His coming is always imminent. It could come at any moment. The return of Christ is imminent for us this morning. And we are closer to it now than we've ever been. Think about that. You are closer to Christ's coming, regardless of when he's going to come. You are closer to Christ's coming than you were when you first believed. You are closer this morning to that day dawning than you were yesterday when you woke up. How much more today are we to live in the light than yesterday? Because that day is that much Closer to us. Our glorification, the redemption of our bodies, the elimination of all sin and death is drawing near. Romans 8, 23, we read that, we studied that. Paul says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, there's that down payment of new life, that down payment of the new age, of the new creation, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly, Paul said then, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We prayed earlier for sickness, we prayed earlier for ailments. We recognize that uh, this life is frail. We're all headed towards the grave, and it's gonna come quicker than we would like, even if we live to be very old. And we recognize our battle with our mortal bodies, with sin. All of this will be transformed and perfected on that great day. This is not a time for us to be just doing life. This is Paul's point about wakefulness, about consciousness. This is not a time for us to be just doing life, going through the motions of life, just checking those boxes. Doing our routines, pursuing our goals, pursuing our dreams. That's not what this life is about. We are to be wakeful, not moving with the current. To be asleep with the world. How often are we just asleep with everybody else? Drowsy, sleepy people. Drowsy, sleepy Christians, living in the night, living in the darkness. This is a call to wake up from the world's slumber. And that's how it hit Augustine, as he was pursuing his passions, his pleasures, himself. As the world tries to suck you in, do you think in these terms... Do you realize that you are a child of the day, a child of the light? Of course you're going to be different than your unbelieving neighbors. Of course you're going to be different than your unbelieving siblings and family members. Of course you're going to be different, perhaps even than your unbelieving spouse. We are children of the day. Unbelievers are children of wrath, children of the night. Once you were darkness, Paul says to the Ephesians, that's what the unbelieving world is. Do you realize this? Are you awake to these realities? Do you realize that all around you there is moral darkness, night and slumber? As you interact with people at work, as you go out and you just see people, do you get sucked right into the world? Or are you conscious of the fact that that is darkness? How easy it is for us to just moment by moment, day by day, just adopt the world's value system, to be moment by moment, tick by tick, conform to this world. Satan is very crafty. He doesn't do it in an explosion. He doesn't just come and cause an explosion. He does that from time to time. But the way that Satan works in our lives is he takes the long view. He's got a long time to work. And moment by moment, little by little, he chips away at your heavenly mindedness with worldliness, with a love of this city of destruction. So Paul calls us here, not to be spiritual sluggards. You remember Proverbs? Proverbs talks a lot about the the slacker, the the sluggard, the slothful person. Well, of course, Proverbs is talking about that very much in, in the practical sense of in our lives and when we get up and how we go about our day and how we approach our work. Paul is using that same Imagery spiritually. So think of it that way. Paul is calling us away from being a spiritual sluggard. Wake up. And as Paul will go on to say, get dressed. And that's where we're going to turn now to our second point, which is our clothing. So we've looked at our consciousness. Now we look briefly at our clothing. Look at verse 12, the latter part of verse 12. So then, in light of what he's just said, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul has just told us that it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. I remember my mom coming in to me when I was a a kid. Get up, son. Get up, son. Come on, get up. And we see that with our own kids. Maybe you have a different system for that, but we want them to get out of bed somewhat quickly. We have to be uh, compassionate there. You know, We don't get out of bed so quickly either, uh, maybe. So we don't want to just jolt them right out of the bed. But Paul has just told us, wake up, get up. The day is at hand. The night is almost gone and the day is near. We are living right now in the light of eternity. The day, the future day has broken in and we can see the light of it on the horizon. We are living now as though that future day of Christ has already come. And we are experiencing daily little tasters of that new day. So what do you do? What do you do when you wake up? When the day has invaded the night. When you rise from your sleep. What do you do? Well, of course, we have little things we do. But the big answer is you get dressed. You get up and you get ready. You get dressed. You put on your clothes. More specifically, you change from your night clothes, your pajamas, into the clothes you're going to go out into the day with. Hopefully, you don't go out in your pajamas unless you're going to Walmart or something like that, but you know, maybe, <laughs> or you gotta go pump gas, I don't know. But you don't generally go out in your pajamas. You change into your daytime clothes, hopefully with a little bit of ironing. That's how it works. That's the imagery that Paul gives us here. We put off something and put on something He contrasts two sets of clothing, two outfits. The first is to be cast off. It is the clothing of the nighttime. We cast it off, throw it to the side. Morally speaking, this is the works of darkness that we are to take off and cast aside. We are to throw those off. These are no longer appropriate to the time because the day has dawned. The day has come. We don't wear those out in the day. The second set of clothing is to be put on. And this is described, interestingly, as the armor of light. You know, our minds, as we read that, should go immediately to Ephesians 6. Maybe that's where your head went. As we think about this armor, Ephesians 6, in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 6, it says this. Put on the whole armor of light. Of God's. We need the whole, all of it. We need every piece. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, this is really important for us to see. What we put on are the garments of warfare. This is a really important observation that we need to make. We put on garments of warfare. We don't simply throw off one set of clothes for another, pajama pants for jeans or whatever. We put on armor. We throw off one set and equip ourselves for battle in the other. Calvin describes it this way. He says, armor is mentioned rather than works because we are to carry on a warfare for the Lord. This is really important for our thinking about the Christian life. This is really important for our thinking about Christian identity. We throw off wickedness. Think about this. We throw off wickedness in order to face danger and hardship. That's what we're called to in the Christian life. How does that gospel preach? It preaches with power because that's the gospel that the Holy Spirit uses to transform people's hearts. Through Christ, we are called to warfare, we are called to danger. And hardship. Becoming a Christian isn't about all of our problems being fixed. I recently heard a Paul Washer sermon uh, about this very thing. He was just talking about how people will get up and, and talk about how I came to Jesus and my whole life got better. No, it's not about our problems being fixed or entering into an easy peasy life. My life was so messed up and I found Jesus and now I'm just riding a wave. It's just beautiful just just totally happy, uh, easygoing. No. When we become believers, we take up a sword, a sword that we did not have before in our pajamas. A shield, a helmet, and we go out to battle against a fierce and ruthless, unbound enemy. One who is working, who is Roaming about, as I said before, seeking whom he may devour. Plucking the seed from the path that lands there as the gospel goes forth. The birds come, pluck it up so that it is not able to take root. Sowing weeds in the field, growing up thorns to choke out the word. As it takes root, very active, ruthless enemy. And we need every piece of this armor. As one commentator puts it, the Christian life is not a sleep, but a battle. So let me just ask you this. Is your conception of the Christian life more a sleep or a battle? To what extent? Is your conception of the Christian life a slumber? Be called to battle this morning. Be called to put on the armor of light. Be called to wake up, get out of bed, and put on your fighting gear. So what does that life clothed in the armor of light look like? What is it? look like. And that brings us to our last point, our conduct. So we've seen our consciousness, our clothing and now we come finally to our conduct. Look with me at verses 13 to 14. Let us walk properly. As in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, Not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What a set of marching orders we have from our Lord there. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, that's one of the reasons we gather, just say, let me say this briefly, it's one of the reasons we gather every week like we do on the Lord's Day, is because these sorts of things we need to hear every week. These sorts of things we need to hear every day. And that's the reason we practice private worship and family worship. And this is corporate worship, is we need our entire lives to be infused with these truths. We need to hear stuff like this. Our kids need to hear stuff like this every single day. As a church, we must hear these words every single week, and this is one of the reasons, as Christians, during COVID, uh, we 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 want so desperately to gather. And so churches responding to the situation early on, but then as, as delays and delays and delays began to happen, the church recognized all over the world, and we see this here in this country in particular, we must gather, we must hear these things, we must worship our God together, we must hear his word taught together, we must sharpen one another, we must remind one another as that day approaches what it is to live, hopefully, and to live holy. Before the Lord, we need this message all the time. In these verses, Paul contrasts walking in darkness with walking in the light. The conduct of the believer versus that of the unbeliever. Life lived in the nighttime with its night clothes versus life lived in the daytime with its armor. Of light. He contrasted the two. What does one way of life look like? What does the other way of life look like by contrast? Three words help us dissect what Paul says here about life in the darkness. So these are just sort of three headings you can write down if you want to, just to kind of tie together what Paul says in verses 13 and 14 about life in the darkness. So first, examples. Examples. Paul begins by giving three examples of life in the darkness. This is a little vice list. We get these all throughout the New Testament, these little vice lists, and we get corresponding virtue lists. Paul here gives us a little list of vices. And so it shouldn't surprise us. We find these vices collectively all in all the different vice lists. You'll find some here and some there, and then these will match except for one thing. we find this all throughout. He gives us three sets of vices here. These are representative examples of life in the night or life in moral darkness. The first set he gives is orgies or revelries. Really the word is more kind of wild partying. It's carousing. That's the better way to capture this word. Revelries and drunkenness. And we know that these two vices are friends. We've seen this. Uh, we've seen this in our own lives. We've seen this in the lives of others. You know, recently this week, um, we watched a, a movie that Voices of the Martyrs put out, The Voice of the Martyrs put out uh, about uh, Richard and Sabina Wormbrand and uh, the suffering that they endured uh, in Romania. And one of the things that was very interesting. In the movie is Richard is converted. They're both atheists. They're, they're Jewish atheists. And Richard is converted to Christ. And he uh, comes, when he sees his wife, he tells her. And she is absolutely unhappy with that. I mean, it's like the case for Christ if you've seen that, that movie. You know, a spouse comes home and says, I've accepted Jesus. And the spouse is like, Get away from me. What in the world have you done? And so she's very unhappy. Well, then he very wisely begins to sort of enter into this search with her, and he takes her. They go to the movie theater. He takes her to an old kind of risque movie uh, that they would have wa- that he would have watched in the past, but that she's still kind of into. And he, and he just is helping her to see, after at the end of the movie he talks with her about it, just helping her to see what the world is really like. And then he takes her to a bar with their old friends, and they sit there, and they're spending time with their old friends, and there's all this sort of uh, adultery going on and drunkenness and everything else, and they leave, and she actually grabs his hand and says, we have to get out of here. And so he's, he's helping her to see the life that she is leaving behind, and that he himself has already left behind, this life of wild partying. And drunkenness. And this defines youth culture in our country. This defines youth culture all over the world. This is what it means to have a good time. It is synonymous with enjoyment, entertainment, and having a good time in this dark night world. So Paul deals with it here. Wild parties and drunkenness. These two vices are buddies. They come together. They are also listed together in Galatians 5.21 and 1 Peter 4.3. Then Paul goes on to list sexual immorality and sensuality. This word sensuality in particular is interesting. It carries the idea of self-abandonment. This is kind of a, a virtue. This is a virtue in our world. Lose yourself. Just lose yourself. Express yourself. And in that you will find yourself. This is all lies. This is rubbish. This is the message of Satan. This is the message of hell. But this is the message that all of our children are growing up hearing. This is the message that we send them off to college to imbibe among their friends. And even from the academic world. This casting off of restraint. It's interesting that this word is used of Sodom and Gomorrah in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 7 where it says that he rescued Lot, righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. So it is the the picture of Sodom and Gomorrah These men have so given in to these perverse lusts, these perverse homosexual lusts, that they are literally raging and foaming at the mouth to fulfill, to satisfy those perverse desires. Sensuality. The word itself in English just kind of gets at it. It sounds like it is. Finally, he lists quarreling. And jealousy. This is rivalry or strife coupled with envy. We know that when we want to be like somebody else or we want to have someone else's thing or characteristic, uh, we are hating them in our hearts. We are stealing from them. Coveting is a form of stealing because if we could, we would take that thing that we covet. We envy, we are jealous. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 talks about this. Paul sees these things, these are also sisters, sees these things, They're, they're friends, he sees them in the church. For you are still of the flesh, he says to the Corinthians. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? You know, we're seeing this in Christianity today, this forming of factions, this forming of camps, this forming among, among like minded, in many ways, evangelical Christians, this, this forming of groups, this forming of rivalries. I'm of this guy, this, this well known YouTuber or blogger or pastor or writer. I'm of this guy. I'm of that guy. Don't we see that that is sin? Don't we recognize that that is against God's word? Don't we see that that form of strife and contention and rivalry is of the flesh, not of the spirit? It is of the flesh. The second word, after the word examples, is the word provisions. Provisions. As we get at what Paul means here by life lived in the darkness, we get the examples and now we see this idea of provisions. Provisions. Christians, children of light, children of the day, are not to make provisions for the flesh. Not to make provisions. To make provisions for the flesh, for that old in Adam self, is to live in the darkness. To make provisions is to give thought to satisfying the flesh. You know, we think about Our children, they gather around the table and we begin to make provisions for them to eat. Making provisions for them to go out as we get them ready if they're really small or help them get ready. Provisions, we usher them along to brush their teeth before they go to bed. We tuck them in bed. We make these provisions for them In order to realize whatever state of being it is that they need, do we make provisions for the old in Adam self? Paul says, no, don't. Don't be awake. Put on the armor of light. Make no provision for the flesh. We are to give no room. Let me ask you this: where are you leaving the door open? Where are you leaving the door open to the flesh? Where are you making provisions for your old self to flourish? And then you're getting all upset and out of sorts when it flourishes. And going, God, why is this happening to me? you got a wide open door for the flesh. And you're wondering why this is happening to you? You want God to just drop some kind of remedy right out of heaven into your lap? He's given you these words. He's given us this instruction. He's told us, make no provision for the flesh. Slam the door in the flesh's face. Do not let it flourish. The reason that sin is flourishing in our lives is because we've made a lot of provision for it. We've given it a lot of sandwiches. We've given it a lot of sips of water. We've made it very, very comfortable. We've nestled it in to our lives. So the second word there is provisions. The third word is passions. Passions. To live in the darkness is to live as a craving beast. It is to live like an animal of the field. The animal kingdom knows nothing other than craving. We have a dog. We've had a dog for uh, since last March. I'm still trying to figure out whether, how much I, I like that dog. I'm still, I kind of go back and forth. I'm, we're still in the puppy phase, so it's typically on the negative side. Uh, but, you know, sometimes he'll come up real close and you'll think, oh, he's showing a little bit of love. No, he smells the cheese stick. Or he smells that piece of ham. Or he smells what we had for lunch. He is craving... Whatever it is that he smells. And that's why he's getting all nestled in close to us. That's why he's coming up to us. Because he's craving that as an animal. That is understandable in the animal kingdom. And in fact, God has put it there naturally. And we, we see it. And we're meant to say, don't be like that. Governed by our craving. To desire and crave and to be governed by those desires. That is to live for our passions. James 1, 14 to 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, by his own passions. The devil never made you sin. No one else ever made you sin. You know, we talk to our children about not provoking each other. And we also think in those terms. But at the end of the day... No one provoked you to sin. My passions and your passions are what lead us to sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is how it works. This is the anatomy of sin and death and temptation. Those desires... No longer rule us. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, we've been set free in Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We, the shackles have been broken off. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. Because you are not under law, but under grace. That is who we are. But sometimes we live as though sin is still in control. Sin is still on the throne. These desires have been replaced by a desire to love and serve our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord and our Savior. Our Redeemer. Our closest friend. Our Shepherd and our King. Those desires have been replaced. Overshadowed by these holy desires. And that leads us to our new life in the day. So we've talked about darkness, these words, examples and provisions and passions. Now, as we close this morning, I want to talk about our new life in the day. What does it mean or look like to live in the daytime, to live in the daylight? Positively speaking, we've seen what it looks like negatively speaking. We don't live in the darkness. But what does it look like to live or what does it mean to live this positively? Well, there's one answer, simple and beautiful answer. It brings us back to our clothing Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the crescendo. That's the climax of all that Paul has been saying. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to put on Christ? I mean, this is lofty language. It sounds really good on paper, and it sounds really good in our heads. But what does it look like to put on Christ? To put on the Lord Jesus Christ well, I want to give you just a few facets to this. First, it is personal. It's personal. Notice that we don't merely take on behavior or a philosophy. Paul doesn't say put on Christianity. He doesn't say that. He says put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. We come to know a person. He is real. He exists. He rose From the dead. Christ is alive now. He's as real as real can be. He is a person. And he is known personally. He's known intimately by each of us. We're not just putting on a moral philosophy or a way of life. We are putting on a person. We are knowing and communing with a person who lives at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. It is personal. It is spiritual. To put on Christ is to live in the power of the Spirit. It is to live empowered by Christ's Spirit through His Word. I love this was pointed out a long time ago to me, but uh, John MacArthur points out that there's a parallel between Uh, Ephesians and Colossians are parallel epistles. There's a lot that sort of track together. And in Ephesians, we're told, be filled with the Spirit. And in Colossians, in roughly the same parallel place, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so what MacArthur pointed out was that these two things are interchangeable. They are synonymous. And that was so helpful for me because we talk about be filled with the Spirit, especially in the kind of charismatic chaos of Christianity today, we can really turn that into some sort of mystical, uh, ecstatic thing. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, let the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of Christ from both testaments... Let that dwell in you richly and meditate on it. The psalmist says, day and night. That's what it is to live in the Spirit, to live in Christ's Word. It is spiritual. We can't do it. We need the Spirit. It is total. Christ comes to define every area of life as He does, so as Lord. Christ comes, we put Him on, As Lord and King of all. He's not just Lord of like this or that area. To put on Christ is not to put on Christ some days but not others. Not to put Christ on in some areas of life but not others. It is not to put Christ on for some virtues but not the others. It is to put him on entirely. He reigns over the whole thing. That's how we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. Every ounce of our being under the dominion of Christ. And finally, it is transformational. We begin to look more and more like him. As we put him on, we begin to image him more and more and more. To put on Christ is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, Romans twelve two it is to be conformed to the image of God's son Romans 8:29 it is to behold the glory of the lord and to be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another 2 Corinthians 3:18 are you experiencing change in your life maybe it's because there's too much slumber Maybe it's because you're putting on the works of darkness. Maybe it's because you're making provision for the flesh. You're living like a beast in your passions and desires. The call is the same for all of us. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ personally, spiritually, totally, and transformationally for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for this call to action, for this call to wakefulness. Lord, this call to live as Christ in the world. Lord, our hearts are so steeped in worldliness. This is such a naturalistic, materialistic, godless, fulfillment-seeking society that we live in. It is polluted from top to bottom, and we drink it every day. Father, thank you for calling us to be children of the day, children of the light, to put on he who is the light of the world. We thank you for him. We pray now that as we practice the Lord's Supper, that we would commune with him and with one another. In Christ's name, amen.